Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer that Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Father, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. We're going to begin in 1 Corinthians 9, 1. Here's what Paul writes. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have authority to eat and drink? Do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have authority to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this authority over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This is the word of God. Now in chapter 8, Paul set out the limits of Christian liberty, the limits that are to be determined by brotherly love, by concern for the welfare of fellow Christians, and he summarizes the principle as take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And that's uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Essentially, our rights end when another person is offended by something that we consider to be an area of freedom for us, but if it causes them to stumble, then the higher law is love and concern for our brother or sister in Christ. We don't do those things around them. Well, then in chapter 9, the apostle illustrates how he followed the principle uh, in his own life. In verses 1 through 18, Paul discusses his right to be financially supported by those to whom he ministers. And verses 1 through 14, he sets forth, he argues his case for why he has this right. And then in verses 15 through 18, he gives the reasons why he personally didn't take advantage of of that right. He had his reasons. And then, of course, we'll cover later, verses 19 through 27, Paul explains that he would give up any and every right for the sake of winning men to Jesus Christ. So his love led uh, his actions in that regard. In the first section of the chapter, Paul gives six reasons why he had the right to be supported by the churches to whom he ministered. The first is he was an apostle. Second, It was customary to pay workers in that manner. Third, it was instructed in God's law. Fourth, other leaders exercised the right. Why not he? Five, 
It had been the universal pattern going all the way back into the Old Testament. And then, of course, uh, last but certainly not least, Jesus ordained it. So let's look at number one. Uh, it only applied, applied to an apostle. And because there are no new modern-day apostles, then it, obviously it doesn't apply to anyone today. The other five reasons actually do apply to every single minister of God in every period throughout the church age, throughout church history. So let's start with verse 1 as Paul begins his argument. He begins with four questions, and these are rhetorical questions, meaning the answers should be obvious to all of us. 1 Corinthians 9.1, here are the questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? So the first question, am I not free? Do I not have rights just like the rest of you? Yes, of course he does. However, he's saying there are things that I value and place a higher priority on than my personal freedom. It should be the same with us. Yes, freedom is a wonderful thing, but when it comes to the cause of Christ, when it comes to our brothers and sisters in Christ or winning others to the Lord, then our personal rights sometimes have to take uh, a back seat uh, out of concern and love for those that we're trying to reach, okay? For the sake of the gospel, you have seen in Scripture Paul lay aside his personal freedoms. His number one priority was to reach everyone he could with the truth of the gospel. His second question, am I not an apostle? Paul stands in a position of an elite class of men handpicked by God himself. So if anyone deserved a place of prominence in the minds of the church at Corinth, it was Paul. But Paul wasn't boasting, okay? Then he asked the third question. It's again a qualifier of his apostolic position. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been personally taught by Jesus. The resurrected Jesus actually revealed things to the apostle Paul. And then Paul states, even if somehow those qualifications were not enough for you, then at least the fact that you are the direct work of my personal ministry qualifies me as an apostle, or uh, excuse me, as an apostle to you folks here at Corinth. Okay. He touches on this again in a similar fashion in 2 Corinthians when he says to them, the fact that you exist as a local church, he says, you are my letter of recommendation. But here he uses the terminology that they all knew well, which was a seal. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So you've seen the movies, I know, where they use these wax seals um, and they drip the wax and use a stamp to, to seal something closed. And they would do this on letters. They would do it on containers of goods. It was an official statement of authority. And the seal couldn't be broken by anyone other than the intended recipient. Again, Paul states, you are the seal of my apostleship. And this church exists in this ungodly pagan city of Corinth. And the fact that you even exist as a church in this city shows that the Lord's hand was in this. It is God's seal of approval on my authority and legitimacy as an apostle. So this ministry is legitimate. It is genuine. In verse 3, Paul then invites examination. And this was a legal term back in his day. Paul is saying, feel free to investigate me. Feel free to open an inquiry into my genuineness and legitimacy. Beyond that, if the need arose, he's making the argument that he is eligible to receive material support for the work he does for the Lord. And that's why he says, he asks this question in verse 4, do we not have authority to eat and drink? As a minister of God, as an apostle of the Lord, 
do I not have the right to expect that food and drink would be provided for me from God's people, from the church? If you turn to 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, Paul makes his case for those serving as church elders. Uh, again, 1 Timothy 5, 17, it says this, and I quote, The elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor at preaching the word and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Verse 5, Then, do we not have authority to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, he's saying, Do I not have the right to marry a Christian woman and have her minister with me wherever I go? Because in fact, all of the other apostles, including Peter, he calls Cephas, they were married, as were Jesus' brothers, the sons, obviously, that were born naturally to Joseph and Mary after the virgin birth. So we know that it's very likely that Paul was a widower, but he still had the right to marry a believing woman if he wished. And of course, he chose the status of singleness, and Colton covered the reasons why a few weeks back. He couldn't he couldn't think of putting a wife or children through the kind of persecution and and uh, all of the issues he faced in his ministry. But if Paul had exercised that Christian liberty and been married like the other apostles, it would have been acceptable for him to take his wife with him as he ministered and to have his wife supported along with him in the ministry. So this verse supports the principle of paying pastors who give their lives to preach and teach the gospel, evangelists who go to preach the gospel, missionaries who answer the call to go, church planters who answer the call to go and plant new churches, and of course other believers who find themselves in full-time vocational ministry. The body of Christ should pay them enough so that their wives don't have to work. That way they can have more time to help their husbands deal with the trials and the sacrifices of of day-to-day ministry. This verse can be applied to the principle of paying for the wife's expenses, obviously when she travels with her husband in his ministry, just like the rest of the apostles and, and Paul argues the brothers of our Lord and Peter did. That term, to take along, the original word is parago. It means to carry about in one's company. So uh, I got to say, you know, Krista's support and companionship to me has been so vital Uh, in my calling to serve the body of Christ. There's absolutely no way I would be able to do what I do without her heart and her support as my wife. Um, I just couldn't do it without her. Obviously, you know, a wife with small children at home or with other such commitments that kind of limits the trips that she can take and how much she can be involved in her husband's ministry, there are things always to be considered in any of those situations. But the point is, that when it's possible for her to go along with her husband, then every effort should be made within that local body to make that happen and support both the husband and the wife. The The proper attitude is that the church or Christian group supporting the pastor should do their level best to pay for the pastor and his wife and pay them enough to even support their children. And within that, there's a built-in protection as well meaning the husband is not traveling if he's an evangelist or a missionary or whatever. He's not traveling on his own, uh, being away from his wife, but she's with him as often as possible. 
And again, the attitude of the body of Christ in the local church should be one of generosity and honestly, never thinking of the pastor as a mooch uh, or that he's taking advantage of the flock. In fact, the pastor, if the pastor is not manipulating the church family to to give in order so that he could live a lavish lifestyle, you know, then Paul asks the question, do, do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? So, you know, he's making this argument, it's okay for a pastor to not work a second job if it's possible and pour his heart and life into the local congregation and, and refrain from working and be supported by the congregation. And Paul's arguing this point for he and Barnabas. Um, they had as much right as the others to get their support from their work within the local church without having to work extra on the side. And now, they didn't pay their own way because they were obligated to. They did it voluntarily. More than likely, um, they knew that their time there in that local church as missionaries or as church planters was temporary. And so, they probably allowed the congregation to save money up to support the permanent man who would follow in their footsteps when they stepped out. Um, okay, so then next, Paul argues that supporting the pastor is customary. He uses three easy-to-understand examples. In verse 7, he begins, Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not consume the fruit of it? Or who shepherds a flock and does not consume the milk of the flock? Paul, again, is making his point through these rhetorical questions, the answers to which are obvious. The answer expected to each question is no one. No one expects for any of these three to do their work without some sort of compensations. Obviously, soldiers do not fight during the day, and then at night they go work a civilian job uh, in order to eat food and buy clothes and have a place to live. Soldiers don't serve at their own expense. They're provided everything that they need in order to live so that they might be able to fight effectively, and the pastor should be seen in that regard as well. Farmers do not plant a vineyard or cultivate a crop for someone without being paid. They do not farm for free and then do other work to make a living. They eat the fruit of the farming. Uh, they're being paid either in money or with a share of the crop. In uh, 2 Timothy 2.6, Paul mentions this in his letter, his second letter to Timothy. He says, quote, The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. So if he's pouring his life into this you know, this farming in, in cultivating the earth and growing this food, he ought to be the first to receive the benefits. And so, again, he's equating that to the pastor in the local church who's pouring his life and his effort into the body of Christ. He should be the first to receive his share of uh, the, the harvest in that local church. And then, of course, he brings up shepherds. Shepherds do not work for free. They expect at least some of the milk or the meat from the flock in payment for their effort, and this is only right. All three types of workers are paid for their work. It is customary. It is rightful. It is the expected thing. So why should it not be true, then, for God's workers as well? And then Paul argues that it's God's law. Look at verse 8. He says, Am I speaking these things according to human judgment? Or does not the law also say these things? Verse 9, For it is written in the law of Moses, quote, You shall not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. Is God merely concerned about oxen? So Paul's making a case here 
that regardless of the previous human arguments about the farmer and the soldier and the shepherd, uh, there's a higher law, even higher than that, at work here, and it comes from God himself. God's law teaches the same exact thing. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That quotation is from Deuteronomy 25, 4, and it refers to a practice that's actually written in the law of Moses, and very simply put, oxen were supposed to be allowed to eat the grain as they worked. So as they're threshing this grain, they're walking around in a circle, they're, they're tied up to this thing as they're walking in a circle, crushing the grain, and they don't muzzle the ox, so the ox at any time he's hungry can lean down and eat some of the grain on the threshing floor. And then he follows it up by saying God is not concerned about oxen. That doesn't mean that God has no interest in caring for animals because in Job 38, 41, it says the Lord prepares for the raven its nourishment. In Psalm 147, 9, it says the Lord gives the beast its food. And then, of course, we know that Jesus spoke of the Heavenly Father feeding the birds of the air. Uh, and then he says, if God cares for them, how much more so does he care for you? So the point is that God's ultimate concern is not for the animals, though he cares for them. He's much more concerned for his people. So if he wants to make certain that oxen are paid for their work, how much more so is he concerned that his true servants, his men in the ministry, be compensated for their work as well? So Paul's pointing to this ancient, well-established practice of not muzzling working oxen, and he's using it to teach that human workers should be paid for their work in the ministry as well. As he says in verse 10, God was speaking altogether for our sake. The plowman and the thresher should be able to work in hope of sharing the crops. Paul had every right to apply the principle to himself. If men working for men are to be paid for their labor, surely then men working for God should be paid for their labor. If we sowed spiritual things in you, he says, is it asking too much that we should have hope in taking part in the harvest as well? Even expect that our material needs be met as well? So as a pastor, the man of God should expect that God will provide, yes, the spiritual rewards for himself and for his family based on his faithfulness to God, but God's people are responsible to provide material compensation and to provide it generously as if it were being given to God himself. Remember the verse we just read in 1 Timothy. Paul says, double honor, that he is worthy of double honor. That doesn't mean you pay him double than everybody else. He's just saying he should receive spiritual blessings and physical blessings as well. Uh, you know, this mentality that, you know, the Lord's servant should starve to death or barely get by. You know, God's word tells us that faithful servants of God deserve to be supported well by the local church family. There should not be a double standard, one that applies to preachers, missionaries, and other Christian ministers, and then a standard that's considerably, you know, higher for secular jobs or people who work in out in uh, the world, okay? Um, this idea that, that preachers are supposed to suffer for Jesus is uh, not biblical at all, and we're, we're seeing Paul make his argument here. Uh, and then, you know, again, uh, being wise in your giving is part of your stewardship. It's your responsibility as a part of the local church to give and support the work of the ministry, and nothing in this world is free. You can't do anything for free 
it's costing someone something. So you just need to keep that in mind, uh, whether it's me or the next guy that comes along if something were to happen to me, right? You need to cover the needs of your pastor and his family. And the hope is that in this local body, everyone would give and everyone would take part. Everyone would sacrifice to some degree and that the needs of the pastor would be met in a way that is honoring to God and and also that would be um, that would resource him and his family for life in in order to do the ministry. Beyond that, then resources are used to serve the rest of the body to support the local ministry within that local body, and then if possible, extend to the community beyond the local church. Again, I want to say I'm uncomfortable to some degree because the subject matter seems a bit self-serving when I'm talking about it, but it's simply our passage for today. I didn't pick this subject matter. It's God's Word, and I have to be faithful. I can't shy away from teaching this either. Our attitude should be that as we give to a servant who is faithful, who shows himself worthy of handling God's Word, who gives of himself to serve your family, our attitude should be that we should give happily, generously, trustingly, and then it becomes an act of love for you to care for your pastor and his family. Whether it's me, as I said, or if I keel over and it's the next guy who comes along, it, it is my responsibility to teach you what God's Word says so that if something were to happen to me, you would know how to care for the next of God's servants in line after me. So Paul states this very clearly. If there is a genuine spiritual ministry taking place in the local body by a faithful servant and pastor, it shouldn't be too much to ask that he be supported in material support from that local body, uh, everybody giving to help. You know, Paul speaks of the churches of Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and many others as we read about in Scripture. They all consistently supported Paul's ministry financially, both as a pastor while he worked alongside them and as a missionary after he left them. And in addition, these churches continued to give to help other churches that were being planted as well. And he makes the case that they had very little wealth, the churches, and they were facing severe persecution at the same time. But in the midst of that kind of suffering, Paul says, out of their joy, in spite of their deep poverty, they gave. Uh, look at first, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We're going to look at verse 1. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the richness of their generosity. Look at verse 3. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, so there was sacrifice, there was stretching involved, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So Paul is using them and their, their sacrificial attitude as an example of the heart and the sacrifice involved as a model of giving for all Christians. And the bottom line is this, and it should be viewed in this way, 
giving to the Lord's faithful men, giving to the church, is giving faithfully to the Lord. And God often gives to some of His children beyond measure, so that, as Paul had already reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1.7, he says, we are not lacking in any gift. So if you're super blessed, it's more than likely because God wants to give you a certain amount of uh, money in order for you then to pay that forward and, and help finance the gospel, help finance the ministry, okay? He's not uh, giving you pressed down, shaken together, running over blessing so that you can spend it all on yourself, right? Um, so that should be something that if the Lord has blessed you, you should pray about. Lord, uh, how much of this do I need to give in uh, regards to supporting the ministry and supporting the local church? In Philippians 4.19, it says, God supplies all our needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I do believe that verse with all my heart. I found it to be true in my upbringing. I found it to be true in, in my own life and Krista and I, our ministry. Um, his church gives sacrificially because God gave to His church sacrificially. And God's adopted children are supposed to reflect their Heavenly Father's generosity. I know you've read 2 Corinthians 9, 6, that he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. That's pretty simple. As individuals and as churches, Christians who give generously to the Lord's work and to the support of His servants, they will be blessed. And not always material wealth. As a matter of fact, most often it's not material wealth. It's spiritual blessings. But again, sometimes the Lord blesses people because He knows that He's equipping them in order to uh, finance the sending out of faithful men, and the preaching and teaching of the gospel. So let me just encourage you in this way. Do not grow weary in doing good or in doing the right thing or of giving of yourself in a way that you feel might be beyond your ability to continue to give. Um, it is our Lord's will that we all be generous in many ways with our finances. And some of us do what I do and just, uh, you know, you give up your time. You move to a new place and and you start a new work. Uh, obviously, to our pastors, to our missionaries, to those leaders of any kind who come and minister to us here at Bright Star, um, we want to be unbelievably generous to them as God has been so generous to us. Then Paul states his fourth re reason. He says, it had been done for others. Verse 12, if others share this authority over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this authority, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. The Corinthians apparently had always supported their pastors. They had supported Apollos. They had supported Peter in the past. As the church's founding pastor and as an apostle, Paul had more claim on their support than even the others did. But he says he didn't exercise this right in spite of the many reasons that he is making to justify his right to be supported financially, he actually waived that right, as I discussed before. He says, quote, we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And the basic meaning of that word endure, stako, is to bear or pass over in silence. And Paul here is indicating that throughout his ministry, he continued to bear all of the persecution, all of the difficulties of ministry without complaint 
and whatever was necessary to fulfill his work in the ministry, he was willing to do. So, in other words, Paul's regular way of life was self-denial. And he died to self. He died daily, he says. In Acts 18.3, we find that Paul worked as a tent maker to pay his way while he preached and taught. And Paul could tell the Corinthians the same thing he told the Ephesians in Acts 20.34. He says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and then to the men who were with me. So Paul not only supported himself, but many of those who worked closely with him. Paying his own way was to him one means of not hindering the gospel of Christ. And Paul didn't want new converts or potential converts to have a reason to think he was preaching the gospel for his own selfish motives or for uh, uh, filthy lucre, for his own agenda or his own personal gain. He didn't want anyone to think that he was in the ministry for the sake of money or an easy living or a posh lifestyle, you know, all of that stuff. And that standard was especially important for Paul's work because he, more than any of the other apostles that we know of, worked primarily among the Gentiles. So not only the gospel itself was new to the Gentiles, but the Old Testament background of the gospel, the new covenant, was completely new to those that Paul was working to reach. And he didn't want that message to be eclipsed or called into question in any way. So the other apostles and New Testament prophets worked among Jews, and the Jews were accustomed to God's men being supported by his people. To them, that's just how things worked. I mean, in the Old Testament, they gave and gave and gave. Sometimes 60 to 80% of their income went to uh, tithing and, and giving money to the church, and through the church, then the government being funded. Um, you know... But when Chris and I, when we moved to begin a new ministry, a new work, we knew that we would have to do whatever was necessary to provide for ourselves until there would be a group of believers that would be established enough to help support us financially. That's what we signed up for, okay? I will also say that in light of many modern preachers today who manipulate and make uh, the gospel merchandise, right, they, they're selling the gospel, and they clearly are doing it for financial gain. I have tried to be so very careful not to give grounds for anyone to accuse me of doing what I do for the money, which is pretty funny um, if you consider how unbelievably lucrative planting churches is. Uh, and, of course, hopefully you could detect my sarcasm. I have personally erred on the side of caution, uh, maybe even too much at times because Again, I don't ever want my motives to be called into question. I would rather personally suffer or endure hardship than for people to get the wrong idea about me or my agenda in preaching and teaching the gospel. However, I will say there's hopefully a day coming in which you all really truly know my heart and motives as your pastor, and that with a clear conscience, you guys taking part in the consistent support of the church, that through that, Krista and I would be supported by you, and that would actually bring you great joy in, in supporting our family. Now, the fifth reason Paul argues is, he says, it's the universal pattern. Verse 13, do you not know those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? 
Paul's stating yet another right for him to be supported by the churches he served. He's saying it had been the universal pattern since the founding of the priesthood in Israel. So the, the Levites, the priests who performed sacred services back in the tabernacle and the temple, they were supported by the tithes of the crops, by their flocks, the, the animals, the sacrifices from the people to whom they ministered. And even before that, in the tabernacle. Um, we know about in Genesis 14, um, there was a, in the lineage of uh, Melchizedek, he was called a priest of the Most High God. Uh, you know, Abraham gave a, a, a tenth of his uh, offering to him. So again, these priests early on regularly took care of the temple or the tabernacle. They served God's people. They did so in complete service to God as a way of life, and they needed to be provided for, and this is how God uh, provided for those men of God. And he had, also, he, he had always done it this way. Through his own people, he would bless the men who had given of themselves to serve uh, his people. The sixth reason that that Paul mentions here is very, very clear. He says Jesus ordained it. In chapter 9, verse 14, it says, So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul throws down the gauntlet here. The final argument was that Jesus said it, so there. <laughs> Jesus had ordained this principle. And those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. Both God's law and God's Son teach that His heralds, His teachers, His ministers are to be paid for their work as unto the Lord. The New Testament teaching further validates and confirms the teachings of the Old Testament. Maybe Paul was referring to Jesus' instruction to the 70 that he sent out in Luke 10.7, or possibly he was referring to one of the unrecorded teachings of Christ that we don't have an account of in the Gospels. Or he could have been speaking of a special revelation that Christ himself gave to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't really matter. The point is that Jesus personally taught this truth. And the Lord's command was that his people offer support to those who minister to them and serve their families. He doesn't command the minister to always accept the support for himself if he deems that the resources are more useful elsewhere at that particular time, the pastor always has the, the judgment to waive the right. But again, without making this about me for the sake of application for our local church family, I want to point out a few things. I have personally chosen to waive my pay on a fairly regular basis as we plant this new work. So I yield our family's needs to that of the needs of the church as much as I possibly can. And I do what I have to on the side in order to supplement our income. And Chris and I, again, it's what we signed up for. It's what we're, we're willing to do, whatever the Lord leads. We've done this for many years now. So living within a certain means has become kind of our mode of operation. Um, of course, I'd be less than honest if I uh, said that I want it to always stay that way because we've given ourselves joyfully and we'll do so as long as necessary. But you know, we're getting a little older and it's my hope that as the local body grows here at Bright Star Bible Church that 
that we would grow and you would support the church work in such a way that we can set ourselves up so that we can serve here long term as your pastor really until I croak over. Um, I will always say that I would never ever live an exorbitant lifestyle, um, but we do have simple hopes of staying here, of growing along with you all, of becoming a beautiful reflection of Him in the context of this church. Chris and I would one day like to have our own home, to have our kids and grandkids visit uh, a place that we can call our own. And all of these things, of course, would be wonderful. But in the meantime, we must all be faithful. We must all be willing to sacrifice and count the cost. We must all be willing to do what's necessary to see the work of the gospel done to the best of our ability as a local church. And we have some decisions to make very soon as a local family regarding the land and the future of Bright Star Bible Church. And his promise is that if we are faithful to him and his work, he will be faithful to supply all of our needs to accomplish the task that he has set before us. But the first step in all of this, before we ever get into giving or sacrifice or dying daily, the question is, do you truly know him? Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? 